So this has been a, a fun text for me to prepare because uh, the first sermon I ever gave, I don't know, six years ago, uh, was this text. And I got called up on a Wednesday and was asked, hey, Alistair, I know you've never preached on a Sunday, uh, but family emergency came up. Can you preach? And I said, okay. And so first time I ever preached was uh, four services in Orlando of 800 people a service. And it was terrifying. But this text, uh, I think because of the fear of that experience, has been instilled in me. And so to come back and revisit it has been just a huge blessing. And I'm excited about what God says through this text. And it served me a way of reminder that the sermons here at St. Peter's, they're not always immediately applicable, but they're always eternally beneficial. We're not about application. We're about the face and glory of God. And so uh, this text in particular just resonates of why we preach the way we preach here at St. Peter's. And it's been a good reminder for me this week as I've worked over and over to get to the heart of the text. Uh, week after week, I've been reminding us why we're studying the gospel of Mark. It's one and simple and yet profound and lasting question. Who is Jesus? And Mark, he tells us up front, first sentence, Jesus is the Son of God. And throughout his gospel, Mark has been showing us several things about Jesus. But the past few weeks, the emphasis has been that Jesus has an uncommon authority. We've read and we've seen how Jesus can heal bodies and make people whole, how he can cast out demons, how he can even calm a storm with his very words. Uh, but here's the thing. If Jesus doesn't have authority over death as well, all of these miracles he's performed are just neat little anomalies. If death has the final say, these miracles mean little to nothing in the grand scheme of things. And in the passage today, we finally see in Mark's gospel that Jesus' authority extends over everything including death. But what we'll encounter in the message today, too, is uh, it defies convention. Dead stuff, you know, stays dead. That's what we believe. That's what we're told. Indeed, those who witnessed this event, they were astonished. They, actually, the Greek was they were beside themselves. They couldn't make sense of it. Reality was unraveling at the seams. But when we read about these things, miracles, resurrection. Our default is rarely faith. It's usually skepticism. You know, why should we trust anything that Mark has to say? Well, first, because Mark is upfront about his agenda. How refreshing is that? You know, we can sniff out when people have hidden agendas. We're pushed agendas all the time. Mark, first sentence. This is about Jesus, the Son of God. And the history he records, the gospel itself, it's phenomenal to observe and, and read about how it stands up under textual critical studies. And if that's something you want to look into, I can help you. But what we have in our hands is reliable. It has withstood history. And, and Mark has one single agenda. He wants us to encounter the real Jesus, what he really said, what he really did. And he wants us to personally wrestle with that question, who is this man? And the gospel can only take us so far. It'll present the facts. It'll present an encounter, but it can never replace the need for faith because answering that question is always a matter of faith, a matter of faith that he's the son of God or a matter of faith that he isn't. And so today, the big idea that we're going to explore is this. Death is not the end for us. Facing and knowing Jesus is. So open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 21. 
When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. There's a Chinese proverb uh, that goes, Men can't live without faces. Trees can't live without bark. It's just literal, you know, I think. No, it, it's obviously not about a face that can uh, be shaved or washed. It's, it's more about a significant sociological factor in China. You can gain face and you can lose face. If you have face, you have honor and worthiness uh, and, and social acknowledgement of your honor and worthiness. And if you don't have face, you have shame and exclusion and also the social recognition of your shame and exclusion. And so you can gain face or lose face based on how you relate to the whole of society, the whole of your social network. And uh, you gain or lose face then not merely on individual merits alone. Your face then determines your status and your power, your influence, your worth, and how you relate to others with more or less honor. Now, you might be wondering, what does China have to do with our passage today? A lot more than you would think. You see, in ancient Palestine, it was an honor-shame culture, more like China today than like here and now. And this concept of shame and honor, it's all over the passage today. So we have to try to put on a different set of lenses as we read this passage and get out of our hyper-individualistic mode and try to read it more in the shame-honor context it took place within. And so Mark, he tells us, Jesus gets off a boat. He's coming back from the garrisons. He arrives on the shore. His disciples are with him. And they're greeted by a great crowd, emphasized, great crowd. The movement of Jesus is growing and growing. Interest is increasing because stories are spreading about this man who makes people whole and who's teaching things about the kingdom of God that they've never heard before. But in this passage, the focus is not so much on the crowd, but on a single individual, Jairus. Mark so rarely mentions people by name, but Jairus was a man with a name. A man with status, a man with honor. In other words, he had face. He was one of the rulers of the synagogue. In that day and age, it meant you were the center of society. You know, his influence would be similar to that of our mayor, Gregor Robertson. If you know our city for better or worse, you know his name. And because of his position, Jairus would have been rubbing elbows with all sorts of people. He would have known the elite of the elite, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He would have known economic leaders in the community. And we also know from verse 40 that Jairus was actually quite wealthy. The average home in ancient Palestine, one room. Jairus's daughter has her own room. The implication is that he actually has quite a bit of means. And this is the picture Mark is painting for us. Jairus, he's a man with a name, a man with status, a man with recognition, a man with power, a man with influence, with means. But nevertheless, the storms that can overwhelm us in life do not discriminate and they show no partiality. His daughter is very sick. She's on the brink of death. And Luke's gospel tells us that it was his only daughter. And we're told in verse 42 that his daughter is merely 12 years old. Life is just beginning for her. 
and yet it's on the verge of being snatched away by death. It's a tragedy. And so Jairus, he finds himself in this position of desperation. I can't imagine it. I honestly can't imagine it as a father. It makes my stomach churn trying to get in Jairus' shoes. You know, what can he do to help his daughter? What would any parent do to help their kid? Anything. You would exhaust every possibility, but if nothing is working, what then? But because Jairus is Jairus, he's heard about Jesus either from the religious leaders who are opposing Jesus to his face or from others within the community who are sharing these stories about Jesus, Jairus has likely heard both sides, which actually puts him in a double bind. If he goes to Jesus, he actually risks losing face and honor because he's publicly associating with a controversial rabbi who influential leaders have publicly opposed. If he goes to Jesus, He risks his name and his status and his reputation. But if he tries to save face, if he protects his honor, he will certainly lose his daughter. Jairus, he's a good and loving father. It's a no-brainer. He goes to Jesus. He rushes out to find Jesus. He's willing to put his face and his name and his honor on the line. But as he sets out to find Jesus, what does he encounter? A great crowd swarming around Jesus. And it's pretty remarkable if you think about it. How does Jairus cut through such a great crowd to get a one-on-one encounter with Jesus? How does he pull that off? If you've ever been to the, the Commodore uh, for, I don't know, like a big band like Hanson or whatever the kids are listening to these days, uh, you know, like if you want a good spot on the floor or one of the, the booths, right? You know the booths at the Commodore? Like that's what you want to get you got to show up like yesterday. You know, like you got to get to the front of the line because the crowd will be long if it's sold out. But you've also had the experience of how the Commodore has the VIP door right beside the main entrance. And so you watch people just waltz on by with you, flash their badge, and they go straight in and get all the comfy seats or the best spots. Well, what's going on? Their status affords them certain benefits. You see, yes, Jairus, he's a father, and in his desperation, he's probably trying to cut through the crowd But simultaneously, he is a man known by name. He is a man with reputation in the city. If people don't let him through, they're actually shaming him in public and bringing shame upon their family. Do you see what's happening here? Permit me some hyperbole, but just as God can part the seas, Jairus can part the crowds. He can leverage his honor to get what he wants. It's the power of his name. It's the very thing, the very thing he's risking in coming to Jesus is actually the same thing he uses to get to Jesus. And then Mark tells us that he gets through the crowd. Though. He gets to Jesus and he falls at Jesus' feet. And this just makes emotional sense, doesn't it? He falls at Jesus' feet and he says, help me, help me. And that's probably part of it. But that's also the cultural custom of extending honor from one honorable person to another before you ask a favor. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure Jairus is sincere as a father, but he's using his name to leverage a favor from Jesus. Look at verse 23. Jairus implores Jesus earnestly. So he is sincere, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. 
The good news for Jairus, Jesus doesn't say a word. He just goes with it. What a relief. What a relief. Help is on its way. If Jesus really is capable of doing the things that people has claimed, everything's going to be okay for Jairus and his family. So off they go, but the crowd follows. The crowd is thronging about them. The crowd is pressing in on them and slowing them down. And just when things are finally moving in the right direction for Jairus, Jesus stops. What on earth could Jesus possibly be stopping for? Well, look at verses 25 through 26. There was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse. Jesus stops, not for someone more honorable, but for someone less honorable. He stops for someone who's the exact opposite of Jairus. This woman doesn't even have a name. She's not identified by her position of influence. Rather, she's identified by her condition. She had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Unlike Jairus, she's not at the center of society. She's at the outskirts of society. Her condition, the you know, constant bleeding, would have made her unclean in Jewish eyes. And uncleanliness can contaminate. If you are unclean and you touched a person, guess what? They became unclean. You know, if you ate something unclean, you guessed it. You became unclean. And so her perpetual uncleanliness put her in a position of shame and exclusion in that cultural place and time. And she suffered. And Mark actually says she's suffered much. For as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive, this woman has been suffering. But she hasn't just suffered from her condition. She's suffered under many physicians. She's gone to everyone available. You name it. Doctors, healers. She's tried it. The modern equivalent of Western medicine and Eastern medicine and naturopathic or Reiki or Whole Foods, whatever. She's tried it. But in the ancient world, many of the people who were working as doctors or healers were actually crooks trying to extort money by making promises they could never deliver upon. And so she suffered at their hands in particular as well. She spent all that she has had, just like shopping at Whole Foods. Anyways, <laughs> we can also imagine she's had to suffer through the shame, the shame of people who would suggest, hey, what's going on in your life is actually a sign of God's curse in Deuteronomy. Something's wrong with you. She would have to suffer through the people, maybe even well-intentioned, who'd say, hey, have you tried praying? Hey, have you uh, believed the scriptures enough? Hey, have you uh, offered the right sacrifices? Hey, is there any unconfessed sin in your life that might be causing your illness? You see, it's one thing to suffer from the bodily condition. It's another thing to suffer from people, whether well-intended or just uh, cruel, trying to assess and diagnose you and fix it for you when you've tried everything and nothing is working. Which is to say this, when people are suffering, the best thing you can do is say, how can I be with you? How can I best support you? But she's excluded. She's pushed out of society. She's tried it all and it hasn't gone away. And it's getting worse and worse and worse 
and worse. Unlike Jairus, she has no face. She has no honor. She has no status. She has no health. She has no wealth. She has no relationship to society. She's among the most marginalized you can be. She's an unclean woman in a hyper-patriarchal society. She has nothing. And to people in that day and age, they would have said she is nothing. But she is tenacious. Look at verses 27 through 32. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt it in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. You know, she pushes through the crowd. She makes her way through the crowd. This is scandalous. She's an unclean woman making everyone unclean as she goes to Jesus. She's even risking making a reputable yet controversial rabbi unclean by touching him. This is tenacious. This is bold. But what does she have to lose? Nothing. But here's the beautiful thing about it. Despite 12 years, despite her situation, despite her suffering, despite all the things that are stacked up against her, this woman has faith that Jesus can make her well. She takes a risk. You see, when faith is put into action, it's not always safe. Sometimes it's risky. It's also beautiful. And she reaches Jesus, and she touches just the edge of his garments, and she's healed. She's healed. Power surges out from Jesus and makes her well. Her disease leaves her body after 12 years, 12 years gone. But then she tries to disappear into the crowd and be on her way. But that is not the way of Jesus. Jesus stops. He has this urgent task ahead of him for one of the most honorable people in society, but he stops and he says, who touched me? And the disciples, as helpful as ever, be like, yo, Jesus, look at the crowd. Like, a lot of people are touching you. Why are you asking who's touching you? You know, ancient equivalent of like, oh. And there's something then for us to see here that's incredibly important. There are people thronging about Jesus. There are people pressing in against him. There are many people touching him. And yet only one hand matters. The hand that reached out and touched him with faith. Look at verse 33 through 34. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling. Fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. You see, Jesus could have just let her go. That would have been enough for her, but it wouldn't have been enough for Jesus. Because he didn't just come to heal our bodies. He came to heal 
all areas of life. He wants to heal her relationship with God. He wants to heal her relationship with society. He wants to heal her through and through. He wants to restore her completely, not partially. And maybe you need to hear that, that maybe God has more for you. Maybe you're aiming too low in the things that Jesus offers you. To the woman with no name, the woman only known by her condition, the first words out of the lips of the living Son of God, daughter. Oh, it's so good. Let that sink in. Daughter. To the woman with no name, daughter. To the woman everyone thought was unclean, daughter. She's adopted by God. She's brought into the family. In everyone's eyes, she was nothing. But Christ lifts her up and says, daughter, you exemplify what I'm looking for. He gives her the only name, the only status, the only honor, the only identity that matters, daughter. He is hers. He, he is hers and, and she is his. And then he says to her, your faith, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. And I want to be very clear about something here. Her faith wasn't in healing. Her faith was in Jesus. Jesus and healing are connected, don't get me wrong, but we can't confuse this reality. Healing doesn't suddenly occur because you muster up enough faith to be healed. Because sometimes people are healed and sometimes they're not. Faith is always a matter of trusting in Jesus, the one who can heal. And she's been made well by him because she trusted he was able to do it. And then he says to her, go in peace. He gives her a benediction. He gives her a parting blessing. Go in wholeness. In other words, go in shalom. Go and be restored. You came to me with nothing. You're leaving with everything. You came to me and might as well have been dead and you're leaving with life. And that's what's available when Christ becomes the one in whom we find our honor, our life, our, our identity, our name. And as beautiful as all of this is, because it's beautiful, I can't imagine being Jairus. Because I'm really impatient. And you're watching this and you're thinking, come on, like just get on with it. And at the same time, you're probably growing in excitement. Like, I just, this, this is amazing. He can do what people say. He can really heal. And perhaps his heart lightened. Like, my daughter, my baby, she's going to be okay. But if we put our faith in outcomes alone, if we put our faith in outcomes alone, oh, that can crush us. Because verse 35 happens. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? It's too late. It's too late. Death has come. Why trouble the teacher any further? Grief begins to stir. Shock, numbness, anger. Jesus stopped for this woman. It wasn't even an emergency like my emergency. She doesn't even have honor like I have honor. Maybe even in his anger or pride, he might have thought, doesn't Jesus know who I am? How could he let this happen to me? And the question the people ask is the right question at the right time. Why trouble the teacher any further? 
It's over. It's too late. Death has the final say. Don't waste any more of his time. You see, up until this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been working in the shadow of death. The shadow of death is the brokenness of this world, the shadow looming over us that death will have the final say in 100% of our lives. And it manifests in different ways. And so Jesus comes and he casts out demons. He's bringing light into the shadow of death. He comes and he heals broken bodies. He's bringing light into the shadow of death. He comes and he calms the storm. He's bringing light into the chaos of the shadow of death. But up until this point, he has only come to the brink of death. But now he goes into it. The ultimate human dilemma is in the air, the end for us all. And so the question's right, why bother him anymore? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear. One of the most frequent commands from God out of the scriptures. Do not fear. Only believe. Do not fear. I mean, Jairus has lost it all. His daughter is dead. And he's likely lost his name too. He put himself on the line going to Jesus. And it seems to have only resulted in his shame. But Jesus is challenging Jairus. His honor, his face, his name, his status, his reputation, all that he has None of it can help him in the face of death. None of it matters. None of it can bring his daughter back. The only thing, the only thing that matters is faith in Jesus. And Jairus has just seen that sort of faith that Jesus is calling him to have. Jesus is saying, you've lost your daughter, but I'm calling you to be more like my daughter. This unnamed woman, she might be nothing to you, but she's everything to me. She exemplifies what I'm looking for. And so in no small way, Jesus is calling Jairus to abandon everything he has had, everything he has known, everything that has defined him, and to trust in him alone. And verse 37 and 43 just happens. We don't know how Jairus responds. Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. They all laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Taltha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. I love that Mark puts, like, she was 12 years of age in brackets, just in case anyone assumed it was a baby that started walking, like, just like a little infant walking. That's just how my mind works when I see that. But she's 12 years old. She's dead. Jesus comes in. He just says, Talithakumi. Mark preserves the Aramaic. He's trying to actually record the exact words Jesus said. He doesn't translate them into Greek. He says, no, 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 this has to be written down exactly as it happened in the original language. It just means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Death is just sleep to Jesus. 
in his hand. Dead things come back to life. Jesus has authority over death, which means death is not the end for us and death is not the end for you. Facing and knowing Jesus is. Because death will not have the final say. Jesus will. When we draw our last breath, darkness won't be our end, but the light of the author of life, the Lord of the resurrection, the Son of God. And we will face him. That much is a certainty. The question will be, did you know him? Did you have faith in him? In a very remarkable way, this passage shows us that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We come to Christ equal. And the scriptures consistently show us this reality as well, and that this will be harder for the rich than the poor. It'll be harder for the people that have everything than the people who have nothing. St. James gets this in his epistle, chapter 1, verse uh, 9. He says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and let the rich in his humiliation. If Jairus is going to believe, he can't save face. He can't depend on his status in society. His honor has no effect in God's kingdom. Jesus owes him nothing. And Jesus, he doesn't heal his daughter because Jairus has a name. He heals his daughter because he's gracious and compassionate. And so instead of approaching Jesus in this honor system, Jairus has to learn to boast in his humiliation. Everything he has, everything he clings to, all that's defined him. It's nothing. All he brings to Jesus is his raw, real need. But he has to boast in this because it's in that place that we discover that Jesus really is gracious, that he really is compassionate, that he really is caring for us in our need. Jairus, he's called to be more like this unnamed woman. She was lowly. She brought nothing. She had no honor, no prestige, no name. She brought nothing, but she's lifted up and given the only title that matters, daughter. And I think this truth is particularly challenging for everyone sitting in this room because most of us are going to more readily identify with Jairus than the unnamed woman. Most of us are more like the rich than the poor. Most of us are more like those who have everything than those who have nothing. Most of us come to Jesus with very good intentions but still clinging to other things that have previously defined us. We have our reputations and accomplishments our job titles and our resumes. We have our intellect and our education. We have our moral goodness, our record of volunteering. We have our bank balances and our portfolio. And while we might be willing to hold these things more loosely at times, like Jairus, we often try to leverage them in our relationship with Jesus. Jesus, answer my prayer, please. Don't you see all that I've done for you? Jesus, I should get to do this with my life. Don't you see what I'm capable of? Jesus, you should accept me in your presence. Don't you see how good I am? We live in a system where we also try to derive our sense of worth, our sense of name, our sense of status from society. And culture tries to endow this to us. You're good. You don't need a savior. You don't need sins forgiven. If it helps you a little bit, sure, but don't confess that you're nothing before God. That's an offense to your humanity. 
That's just a flat-out lie. Because it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, we all bring nothing to the foot of the cross, and we gain everything if we believe in Jesus. You see, Jesus, he sees you. He sees you, and he's looking for one thing, faith. And the challenge is to lay it all down, and to boast in our humiliation, to boast in the honor and the identity that Jesus so freely gives us, to boast in the only person capable of defeating death. And the challenge is to be more like this unnamed woman, to come to him with nothing, risking everything like Jairus, but then saying, we have nothing but faith. Faith that you really are good and you really do see us. And he does, and he will tend to you, and he will care for your needs. And he'll even stop to be with you. But please hear me, because I think this applies to several people in the room. You may come to Jesus with faith. It doesn't guarantee you'll be healed. The miraculous healings we see in the scriptures still happen today. Some people in this room might be healed. Some might not. But the miracles Jesus performs are always a picture into the life to come. They're always a picture of what awaits for us on eternity's shores. No more brokenness. No more crying. No more tears. No more suffering. No more spiritual oppression. No more death. Just abundant life. And so we can be sure if we come to Jesus and put our faith in him, no matter what happens between now and when we breathe our last, we will receive the ultimate miracle because Christ will use his authority. And if we have faith in him, he'll declare our sins forgiven and he will raise us from the dead because Christ has raised himself. He'll preach. And so if you look at this passage in Mark's gospel, it's the first sign that resurrection is coming. It's the first sign that it changes everything. And the, when people encounter it, they're overcome with amazement. Reality is unraveling on the seams. Dead stuff stays dead, except here. Dead stuff comes back to life. The world's turned upside down. Nothing can be the same because death is not the end for us. Facing and knowing Jesus is. The good news is we can start to live in the quality of eternal life here and now if we put our faith in him. If we turn to him to have our sins forgiven and we follow him.